So the first of our two very nicely matched papers um, is from Dr. Alison Nuttall, who's connected with the um, University of Edinburgh. Um, both our speakers this morning have come from a clinical background and uh, moved the right direction into uh, medical humanities and medical history. Um, Alison uh, recently published a biography of Simpson called A Ladder Part. Am I saying that correctly? Um, all for the board, you see. Um, and uh, has, has written a lot and uh, studied a lot around um, obstetrics and the um, childbirth um, in Edinburgh in this period. And so today, as you can see, she'll be talking about antisepsis and verbal infection. Even in 1900, only 1% of British births took place there. 
examination of the causes of death in childbirth has drawn attention both to the excessive hospital mortality in the first three quarters of the 19th century and to the sudden fall in hospital maternal deaths following the introduction of antiseptic techniques of delivery. The failure of the majority of privately engaged medical attendants to apply the lessons of antisepsis to their own practice, which kept maternal mortality high both in Britain and Australia until the late 1930s, has also been noted. And it has been argued that it was the financial circumstances of their private practice that forced doctors to take risks with the health of their parturient patients and thus keep maternal mortality high. For them, the time spent in waiting, scrubbing up, and gowning equaled money not earned elsewhere. In contrast, the strictly supervised midwives, especially those employed by nursing associations, the target was infection free delivery. However, this raises the question what was the role of antisepsis in the management of broken infection in the development of maternity hospitals, for whom reputation was worth more than money, and which expanded rapidly from the end of the Great War? and how successful were they prior to the introduction of effective drugs. And this paper examines the changing management of both real and potential infection and its influence on the medicalization of childbirth at the Edinburgh Maternity Hospital. The ERMH was the oldest and the largest maternity institution in Edinburgh. It was founded as a public charity in 1844 and it moved to this building, the first custom-built maternity hospital in Scotland in 1879, and it ceased to be an independent hospital in 1939, when it was absorbed into the Royal Infirmary. From its inception, it provided both inpatient indoor care and domiciliary outdoor attendance, but until the turn of the 20th century, its indoor care could be described as as much social as medical. Most inmates, like Margaret Morgan, were young, single, often far from home, and frequently destitute, while the outdoor patients were typically older, married, and lived close to the hospital. Until the Great War, the number of outdoor births was approximately twice that indoors, but from 1915 the demand for indoor care grew steadily. The hospital recorded its practice in a range of case books, the self-explanatory indoor and outdoor case books, the students' external case books, begun in 1907, which in separate volumes record details of the nursing care of outdoor patients in Edinburgh and Leith, and the special and ordinary case book which from 1870 to 1923 recorded narrative accounts, but mainly in unusual cases. The indoor case books also ceased to be active records of care after 1923, although they were still maintained. Both were replaced by individual case folders, and of these, only those from 1935 have survived entire. And the data used in this paper comes principally from a series of cohere analyses of all the patients of the ERMH. Within four years of its opening in 1844, two deaths from purple fever occurred in the hospital. And the management's response was to close the hospital temporarily and rehouse the six undelivered patients at its expense. There were at least four further outbreaks of purple fever between 1859 and 1879, and they were all managed by temporary closure, cleaning, repainting, and improvements to the ventilation. And these episodes, common to all maternity hospitals, provided ammunition for medical opposition to their very existence, opposition which locally prevented the IMH from amalgamating with the infirmary in 1869, and nationally delayed the use of the Simpson Memorial Fund to build a new hospital by five years. Yet, by 1870, hospital staff were not completely ignorant of the concepts of antisepsis or infection, 
1870, Betsy Aitchison's breast abscess was opened, drained, dressed with parvulated black plaster, and healed within three weeks, the house surgeon responsible having attended Lister's clinical surgical lectures in his final year. Women who had uterine infections, identified by fetid discharge, apparent pyrexia, not feeling unwell, were treated topically by douches of colonies fluid or carbolic solution, whilst being fed especially nourishing diets. In 1873, for example, Mrs. Stewart was ordered port wine, beef tea, and steel drops. And although in the 1870s, recording vital signs was limited to patients who were already unwell, better records show increasing concern for perineal damage as a route of infection, and therefore for its repair. In general, the treatment that was given to sick inmates suggests that staff were concerned for their well-being, a lot of substandard care was given to institutionals as opposed to private patients. However, there were a few other signs of medical involvement in hospital births, and the continuing policy of responding to fever outbreaks by short-term closures and environmental improvements was not compatible with any ambition to provide a regular service for the obstetrically needy, for whom being rehoused was not a solution, and equally confirms that the management of the maternity had failed to grasp the significance of Lisbeth's discoveries. In 1879, the ERMH moved to these brand new premises, furnished with all the most modern sanitary improvements. Yet in the following 18 months, 12 women out of 320 died, 10 from chronic infection. A mortality from infection of 1 in 32, compared with 1 in 92 in 1870. As a result, John Halliday Prune, whom you can see here in 1898, seated next to the matron with the staff of his quarter around about him, but recently appointed ordinary physician, used the experience of Bishop to introduce the antiseptic regime described in Margaret Morgan's case. Its success led to a number of rapid changes in the hospital and its management of childbirth. On a practical level, a new permanent staff post of staff nurse was created expressly to supervise the correct application of the antiseptic regime and staff nurses on the end of Croom's road in slightly darker dress. Um, whilst the former free access of medical students to the hospital was maintained, patients' visitors were also restricted and could only be admitted with a special pass from the house surgeon. Supervision in labour, and particularly the period, increased, creating a larger role for the nursing staff. From 1881, nurses were recorded as present at almost all outdoor cases, with the implication that they ensured an antiseptic field of delivery. This implication is ultimately borne out by the appearance of ERMH nurses in the list of those taking the London Obstetrical Society Delivery Certificate, for which knowledge of antisepsis was mandatory, and by the hospital's acceptance without changes as a training institution by the new Central Midwives Board for England and Wales in 1904. All patients' vital signs were monitored daily and any pyrexia investigated and vigorously treated. For example, in 1912, 6% of outdoor patients in Leith were pyrexia during the pure period, and those whose temperature rose after the third day were treated topically with enomata, fuchsias, and castor oil. All treatments intended to promote excretion of potentially infected matter and encourage intrinsic evolution. And this regime was largely successful. Only one patient progressed to hospital treatment for sarcongitis. Injuries to the birth canal 
identified by Prune especially liable to absorb and rapidly spread noxious material through the system, were now routinely looked for and prepared if possible. In 1890, perineal damage was recorded in 11 cases and repaired in 10. Slow careful delivery was increasingly emphasized to avoid tearing, while the left lateral position, in which the perineum was most clearly visualized by the attendant, gradually became mandatory for delivery. Although antisepsis was not the only new technology to contribute, um, between 1870 and 1890, when there was no change in the social breakdown of its patients, the practice of obstetrics at the hospital had become much more proactive. Intervention in singleton person doors increased from 4 to 19%, and in the outdoor practice, it increased from 1 to 5%. The introduction of antisepsis and the awareness of potential infection rapidly increased the medicalization of births in the hospital's care. And over the period 1890 to 1912, its role clearly changed, even in its patient size, from social to medical. The new emphasis on infection prevention effectively changed the institution's core understanding of infection, from being the result of a failure in the environment to being the personal responsibility of the staff members involved. This change in attitude led the heart of all future teaching by the hospital's representatives. For example, in every edition of this textbook of delivery, R.W. Johnson, ordinary physician and from 1926 professor, stressed that quirkal infection had been virtually eliminated from hospital practice as a result of careful attention to antisepsis, before drawing attention to the failure of private practice to do the same. The hospital records show that Johnson was exactly right that there was a limited application of lessons of antisepsis in private maternity practice, and it had a knock-on effect in the hospital. In 1924, the infection rate among the outdoor cases delivered by the hospital, by this time almost all spontaneous deliveries, was 5%. That is, 34 women among 641 were pyrexial or described as unwell on any occasion, and of these, only one progressed to admission to the city's fever hospital. However, in the hospital, the equivalent figure was more than double. 12% of postpartum patients were considered to have an infection during their stay. The way in which the data had been processed has meant that this number includes a soldier's wife, newly returned from India with dysentery, and two known tuberculosis cases admitted from and returned to Pilton Hospital, all clearly out of the ERAH's control. However, when the infected cases are examined more closely, it can be seen that they were not evenly distributed. Only 8% of women who delivered spontaneously had any record of infection, and this group includes the soldier's wife and the two tubercular patients. There were three deaths among them, two from pre-existing pneumonia and a third from purple peritonitis. But nonetheless, these figures seem roughly comparable with those from the outdoor practice. But in contrast, 20%, one in five of those who required intervention at delivery, subsequently developed an infection. Among those delivered by cesarean section, a third were described as septic or morbid in the fever period. Again, these were not evenly distributed. Only one of the seven were admitted for elective operation developed an infection, whereas half of those admitted as emergencies did, and there were three deaths. Cage Reed, admitted from Abington in mid-August after two days in labour and delivered by cesarean section, developed quercal septicemia, and she was eventually discharged in early November. 
The medical origin was patients who required intervention clearly had an effect. More than a quarter of those women transferred in labour by their family doctors and who were delivered by instruments developed infections, in contrast to 15% of foot patients. A third of women brought in after instrumental delivery by their own doctor had failed, dying from infection. So clearly, emergency admissions, increasing as a result of the RMH's role as a regional centre, were a significant factor in infection into the hospital, thereby flagging up the failure to apply antiseptic principles thoroughly into domiciliary practice. In contrast, only two of the 15 women admitted from its own districts developed infections in hospital, comparable with the rate in only elective surgical cases. The 1924 records are not sufficiently detailed to show how the hospital dealt with this problem. Only one inpatient with a purple infection was transferred to the city's fever hospital, whilst Kate's experience shows that such patients could be nursed in the ERMH for protracted periods. However, the greater detail of the 1935 case bonus makes it possible to see how the hospital addressed the problem of imported infection. Between 1924 and 1935, new research findings into streptococcal infection were rapidly incorporated. Masks were adopted once the role of droplet infection was known. Junior staff became increasingly focused on potential illness, with the result that it's difficult to compare levels of infection between the two years and to measure success, other than in improved terms of transfers and deaths. For example, in the main dispensary in 1935, a quarter of patients were described as having health problems in the pure period, yet only seven were also pyrexial, of whom others admitted to the city's fever hospital Such figures suggest a genuine infection rate of approximately 2%. Nonetheless, most of those identified as potential problems received precautionary treatment from the attendant pupils. Typically in the form of antiseptic douching, pastoral, or animato, and this proactive management of potential infection was a major contributor to the increasing medicalization of the Within the hospital, patients were similarly subject to greater surveillance. The front page of the patient's case folder was now dominated by a chart which plotted temperature against uterine involution. The minus spike of temperature on day three here has also received precautionary treatment, just like quinine and, and erbic. Even among the 56% of inpatients whose spontaneous deliveries were so normal that no comment on them was made, a fifth was similarly marked as having a potential infection. Nonetheless, only 2% were persistently pyrexial and only 1% transferred due to infection. Surveillance of all patients now began at admission. All were seen as a potential source of infection and all underwent a physical examination. Um, this included assessment of, this is the full page, uh, this is more detailed, of the teeth, gums and tonsils, all thought to be focal infection. And this infection, was, this information was not really collected, but it was acted upon. In October 1935, Mrs. Isabella Tui was described as having a heavy cold on admission. And she was not delivered in the lower labor ward, as were the majority of patients, but in the upper theatre, formerly reserved for venereal cases, but now used for those with a suspected infection of any kind. Following delivery, she was again segregated. 
whilst known infected postnatal patients were transferred to the city hospital as soon as possible. Those with minor infections or under suspicion were now nursed separately in the suspect ward. This recent innovation effectively catered for two classes of patients. Those like Mrs. Tooley, who'd always intended to deliver in the ERMH, and those who had not. You see on this, it says upper theatre and suspect ward. As in 1924, those who had not intended to use the hospital until they were sent in as emergencies and who were admitted to the upper theatre and suspect room like this patient were a very specific group. 60% were described as newly delivered or in labour, and all had previously been treated by their own doctor or a dispensary. The implication is that these emergency cases, whom previous experience suggested were highly likely to be infected, were being quarantined from the rest of the hospital. The ERMH had learned the lesson that admitted outside cases were a more likely route for infection into the hospital due to deficiencies in their previous treatment. However, compared with the practice of having this other major voluntary maternity institution, this was segregation light. At the Elsie Ingalls Maternity Hospital, both patients and staff at this time underwent routine bacteriological screening for streptococcal infection or carrier status, and those with positive results were similarly quarantined, the one nursing the other. Confining the problem in this way showed that hospitals felt that they could only control infection by rigorous control of their own environment an argument which Elsie's ultimately extended to home deliveries. Examination of the RMH's case notes suggests that the optimism that accompanied Margaret Morgan's delivery was, if not long gone, much diminished, and the limitations of antisepsis once the key to more proactive obstetrics being exposed. Although in the right hands it provided greater protection for punctuating women, too often its half-hearted application left both patients and institution in danger. And by the mid-1930s, the RMH had effectively reverted to environmental control. In the new maternity hospital which replaced it, suspect and infected patients would be completely separated from the main hospital from the moment of entry. Purple infection, its management and avoidance, was a major influence on the increasing medicalisation and surveillance of childbirth, both within and outside the hospital. Yet there is a coda before statistical time. Paradoxically, hospital records also suggest that fear of infection was a major contributor to the increasingly conservative management of labour between the wars. In 1912, 12% of admitted patients had undergone laborious labours, that is, they laboured for more than 24 hours, and 70% of them were eventually delivered with instruments. But in 1935, despite the hospital's role as a regional maternity centre to which complicated cases were sent, the figures were inverted. 15% of patients labelled for more than 24 hours, yet 62% went on to deliver spontaneously. And although the overall intervention rate in the hospital did rise slightly, from 14 to 15%, nonetheless it was far lower than the 50% cited for private deliveries in the same period, 1924 to 1935. Nor was the low intervention rate among patients who laboured slowly the result of their claiming a long labour, but delivering shortly after admission. The presence in the group of women whose labours were induced suggests general medical tolerance of slow labour, as do the long second stages recorded. In the case of Mrs. Elizabeth Edwards, the head had been on the perineum for some hours and did not appear to be making any advance, 
despite being used to queen in the pituitary to augment labor before she was ultimately delivered by the forceps. Brady use was made of uterine stimulants to bring about normal delivery, but only limited use was made of artificial rupture of membranes, often an effective stimulant, but also a potential route of infection. The fear of infection, which the use of antisepsis ultimately failed to dispel, simultaneously increased the medicalization of childbirth, while encouraging a focus on natural delivery with a minimum, minimum of intervention. Although to my shame, I only thought of this the day after I sent my slides to Julia, I should like to thank the welcome again for their support, the staff of London Health Services Archive, where most of the IMHR club was stored for their help, which is sense for this. Well, thanks very much indeed for a wonderfully detailed talk. And as a fellow Victorianist, I love the, uh, the use of the original material in the presentation. It makes one itch to get back in the archives. We've got a couple of um, minutes for questions. I'm sure this will have stimulated a lot of very interesting um, thoughts and add ons. Please. Hi, thanks so much for your talk. Um, I have several questions, but the one I, I, I want to um, ask you about the figures you just said at the very end and this quite remarkable low intervention rate. It is. As, uh, yeah, as, and, and then this great spike. You said it was 50% in. Uh, and domiciliary practice, practice. At the same time. At the same time. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of something like that before. Um, what do you think, you know, the why, why, in, I mean, you always imagine domiciliary practice would be a least intervention compared to hospitals at this time. And I also wonder if you have com comparable um, infant like neonatal mortality rates for those different, because, you know, so often the intervention to speed up labor is the idea of saving the infant from and I'm wondering if there was actually, you know, this is always an overblown kind of thing. I don't know. See if I can remember all this. The data on the private deliveries comes from the maternal, maternal mortality and morbidity report for Scotland, mm -hmm. um, which is 1935. And the authors are Charlotte McKinley, I forget the names wrong. Charlotte Douglas and Peter McKinley, I think. Mm -hmm. um, they found, well, we got what they were looking into. Um, they argue very strongly that the majority of maternity cases in Scotland were private cases handled by GPs, and GPs were screaming keen ah, to cut to the chase and deliver by forceps. Um, with that speed, one suspects that they didn't scrub well, they didn't um, prepare well before delivering. What intrigues me always is because they're trained in the Simpson. So they're seeing this long, slow process of non-intervention, yet once they go into the community, they act in a different way. Um, another trend which I can't bring out here is there's also some evidence that local GPs are much keener to send problem cases to the hospital by this time. Um, the failed forceps outside rate drops in the city between 1924 and 1935. Um, it remains high in sort of wider areas and the hospital's remit goes down to the border in the south. Uh, Cape, Cape Marion, which is in the prime borough, 
Um, there's another case comes from Newcastle to which is virtually on the English border. And he goes right to the far end of the Kingdom of Five. So you would expect um, you would expect the number of complicated cases to rise in the hospital. If you that's not a complicated question. Um, <laughs> I think in detail McKinley and Douglas would be a good source for perinatal outcomes. Um, don't know off the top of my head hospital outcomes, I'm afraid. Um, no, sorry. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, thank you. Thank you again, for a wonderful talk. very well with uh, Alison's paper and I'm looking forward to it. Um, you're working on publishing that PhD as we speak. It's an unkind question to ask when we'll see it, um, but you've already published it, so I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you Sam for that introduction and I'd like to thank the organisers of the conference for accepting my paper. Uh, my paper is focused on a period earlier than uh, Alison's and I've been talking specifically about the 1860s. You may get tired of me talking about the 1860s, um, but it was an important era in Irish obstetrics. Um, Joseph Lister came to Dublin in 1867 um, to deliver a paper at the annual meeting of the British Medical Association. And his paper was on surgery, uh, aseptic techniques in surgery. Now, you would imagine that uh, that paper would have stimulated a lot of discussion, and indeed it did at the meeting, but it didn't seem to leave any impact on the obstetricians. Now, the mid 19th century to the end of the 19th century was a very exciting time in medicine because it gave us so many things, but it also gave us medical regulation. Um, Prior to that, in obstetrics, we saw the apothecaries, the physicians, and the surgeons, each claiming the right to be the obstetricians. The apothecaries were the poor man's doctor, and a lot of women would first and foremost go to them for assistance, either when they're sick or perhaps in trouble in labor. Uh, the physicians came from being totally disregarded of midwifery in the 18th century, to wanting to be the main practitioners in uh, the 19th century. And that is tied into the whole commercialization of medicine. I should just say that from a social perspective, um, the mid-19th century was an important time in Ireland. The family has probably, you're all probably familiar with the 1840s family and the devastation of the population. But what's much less uh, talked about is the change in society that came about. The Encumbered States Act uh, freed up a lot of land to be purchased by the aspiring middle-class Catholics. And as they became more wealthy, uh, their sons needed uh, occupations.
that is the sun other than the first sun. And medicine was a very popular choice because it gave you access to people, it gave you access to wealth, and to, uh, in particularly for the Catholic aspiring middle class, it created a whole new uh, competitive element, I think it's fair to say, in medicine. But um, in, so we arrived at the stage in the 1860s where when you spoke about a midwife, it could have been a surgeon, a physician, an apothecary, a handy one, which uh, in Ireland would be called a van glina, meaning a woman who kneels, or she could also be called a van cowlack, a woman who helps. But they, but they were the untrained women who'd been delivering forever and ever before the institutionalization. Now, I'll be talking about two characters, Den uh, Dennis Phelan and Ethan Kennedy, and they were pivotal when a crisis occurred in institutionalized childbirth in the 1860s in Ireland. Um, the bulk of the literature repair was delivered by pupil midwives. The majority of pupil midwives in the Rotunda and in the Cumlaoghe in the hospital were medical students. As the century progressed, more and more women were trained because we had all those influences coming in about the institute of the professionalization of nursing, uh, about training, you were losing the illiterate nurses and the illiterate midwives. But anyway, the, uh, the institutionalized childbirth began in Ireland just ahead of England. It was 1745 when an army surgeon called Bartholomew Moss came back from France where he had been exposed to midwifery and he learned his skills there. He came back and opened up a small maternity hospital which within 11 years had been transferred to a most magnificent Palladian mansion uh, in this most, more fashionable part of Dublin. Uh, as well as uh, at that, the middle 18th and the middle 19th centuries seemed to be great times in Ireland. Big events were happening and we hope that in the middle 21st century, we'll see our economy recover. <laughs> and it might indeed do the take that long. But um, this Palladian mansion at the top of uh, O'Connell Street, just up from the Houses of Parliament, was making a physical statement on the landscape, if nothing else. Um, the institutionalization of childbirth, with all its benefits and complications, has been well documented, and the facts are probably familiar to most of you. Today, I'm just going to speak about one of those, and that is puerperal fever, which was also known as hearse fever, or the coach and six fever. Doctors dreaded being associated with um, puerperal fever, but it was happening so regularly in the mid-19th century that many believed that the infection was endemic in the institutions. 1817 was, has been identified as the year when the infection established its habitat quote in the Rotunda. However, there's evidence that it was also present epidemically during the last quarter of the 18th century. It was estimated in the mid-19th century that death occurred among as many as one in two women infected, so it was something you absolutely didn't want to get. The increase in puerperal fever has been traced to a greater demand for medical education and hence a greater demand for midwifery training to urbanisation and to a wider availability of bodies for dissection after the National Act of 1832. In the 1860s, international attention was drawn to the function of lying in hospitals, principally because of this excessive maternity, maternity, maternity mortality from puerperal fever. 
but also because the institutions were very expensive to run. Uh, today, um, I'm going to go into how Dublin's lying in hospitals were perceived and how they functioned at that time. I've examined uh, the records of transactions of the Dublin Obstetrical Society and articles published in the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Medical Science, and I've consulted hospital manuscripts, medical memoirs, parliamentary publications, and annual reports published by hospitals and funding agencies. As I said earlier, the 1860s can rightly be described as a period of enlightenment in medicine. Uh, but it cannot be assumed that enlightenment occurred in all branches of the profession. The other purpose of my presentation is to identify how obstetricians in Dublin responded to developments in scientific medicine, and in particular, I would like to measure their response to Joseph Lister's groundbreaking development of aseptic practices. The etiology of purple fever was unknown in the 18th century. However, it was generally accepted that it was caused by miasma. At the end of the century, the Scottish physician, Dr. Alexander Gordon, proposed that the cause of epidemic of purple fever was, quote, not owing to a noxious constitution of the atmosphere, end quote. However, his was not the conventional view, and his proposal was dismissed by his contemporaries in Scotland. Many midwives in Dublin were similarly disinclined to consider Dr. Gordon's suggestion. Dr. Gordon's early demise uh, may have impeded the progression of his hypothesis and may have lost him potential converts. But his view, it was another two decades before the theory of the epidemiology of corporate fever was spoken about in Dublin. And there, Dr. John Douglas uh, noted that when any two successive months passed without several patients being attacked by some form of the disease, it was deemed fortunate. Now, in the 1820s, you would up to 3,000 women delivering in the Rotunda Hospital, and when you think that it was occurring every two months, and one or two women infected died, then it was a major problem. Uh, Douglas recognised that puerperal fever was contagious and that he himself may have spread the infection. He was the first person in Ireland to suggest that. Nevertheless, he thought women themselves were the source of the infection. He recognised, however, that overcrowding led to the spread of the disease. His contemporary in Dublin, Dr. John Brennan, contended that it was the ignorance of the physician that was responsible for the spread of puerperal fever. Dr. Brennan and Douglas's views were not reflected in the prevailing measures set in place to prevent contagion, and the theory of miasma was held by most people to be the main source of infection. Other causes of contagion were considered at the time centred on women themselves. It was generally accepted that the fever was a disease of the nervous system, and that women in troubled social circumstances are suffering from weakness of mind, are abandoned, or poor treatment by their husbands were particularly vulnerable to the infection. Purifying measures adopted in Rotunda in the 1850s involved introducing gas lighting into the buildings to improve um, lighting, of course, and placing gas burners under the openings of ventilation shafts in three of the wards so as to create a draft of pure air. The remaining wards had openings made in the walls a few inches from the floors for the same purpose. After a similar epidemic of poor fever in 1866, the Rotunda's obstetricians and board of governors uh, decided on a number of actions. These included uh, removing all dogs and poultry 
transit to hospital. Uh, examining all the different tracks. Uh, it was decided that the woodwork in all the wards uh, would receive a coat of oil paint. Uh, the whole of the interior of the hospital was whitewashed. Interestingly, nurses' clothing was washed more regularly, and nurses were instructed to wear a washing gown when attending to the patient. All wards were to be fumigated following the discharge of patients and left empty for two days um, afterwards. They'd already been using a, a rotation system for the wards, which was uh, there were generally six bedded wards. Six women came in for a ward, which was filled up, then they opened up another ward. It wasn't the case of, uh, as we know today. Um, the ward walls were lime washed after every case of chloroquine fever. And uh, in the absence of any cases, they were uh, lime washed every three months. Matron then was a housekeeper, and she was instructed to uh, inspect all the wards for cleanliness both night and morning, and to check that the nurses were on duty, that they hadn't slipped out to the local tavern or anywhere like that. But in spite of all of these developments, nobody mentioned hand washing. And it was already two decades since uh, Senators proved that hand washing and chlorine was vital for the containment of cross infection. It is certain that his work on Guerco fever was known in Ireland from the 1850s and even more widely after 1860. However, Semmelweis and Wendell Holmes and Louis Pasteur's theories were not discussed formally by Irish obstetricians up to 1866. The Dublin Obstetrical Society, which was established in 1838 for the purpose of developing the new science of obstetrics, would have been the obvious platform for scientific developments to be examined and discussed. Uh, alternatively, the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Medical Science might have provided an outlook for scientific developments in obstetrics, but it didn't happen. There are no articles. The only obstetric articles that pre-appear in the journal are about how A, B and C managed uh, one case or another. And as new developments are occurring, like when the forces came back into fashion again, we have loads of articles on what Joe Blogs did in this case. However, in 1867, I think we could say it was a landmark year for Middle Free in Dublin. It began when an essay by the Secretary of the Board of Superintendents of Dublin Hospitals appeared in the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Medical Science. The author was Dr. Dennis Fiedler. He set up, he illustrated the comparative advantages of home deliveries over hospital deliveries. With the use of statistics from the previous seven years, uh, he argued that home confinements, confinements were safer and cheaper than hospital confinements. His arguments attracted dissent from all but one obstetrician, and that was Dr. Ebury Kennedy. He was a rather mature man. He had been uh, master of the Rotunda 20 years earlier and had a lot of experience both in private and in hospital care. And, but I'll talk a bit more about him later. Dr. Fielding was disadvantaged by his lack of popularity with the Dublin medical elite. His recommendation that large Lyme hospitals should be closed and that only small Lyme units should be reserved for complicated medical cases was rejected outright. The proposal was dismissed as unsafe and described as being merely the misguided conclusion of a philanthropist and statistician. However, Dr. Phelan was well equipped to proper his opinions 
and probably more so than many of his peers, for prior to taking up the post of Secretary of the Board of Superintendents, he'd worked for more than 20 years as an apothecary, a surgeon, and a physician, and he'd been a steadfast advocate for the poor and for medical reform. He was a stickler for detail, and his introduction of new statistical methodology led over time to the uncovering of deliberately concealed maternal deaths in Langley and hospitals. I think at this stage I should have paid um, uh, or thanked the Germans for giving the statistics in the mid-19th century because it certainly had a major impact. Rudimentary as they were, but they were very important. And as for us historians looking back, it gives us a bigger picture very often. During the same year as Dr. Phelan's essay was published, Dr. Avery Kennedy, whom I mentioned earlier, the ex-master of the Rotunda, he submitted a proposal to the Rotunda's Board of Governors, in which he proposed that after having spent 40 years practicing midwifery, he'd come to the conclusion that the time had come when, quote, neither the intentions of the founder, the wants and just rights of the public, nor the claims of humanity, end of quote, could justify the continuance of the hospital as a large landing institution. He suggested that the hospital should be used in the future as a hospital for infants and gynecological patients. Again, his proposal was unanimously rejected. Two years later, in 19, or rather 1869, Dr. Kennedy returned to the subject of the function of the Lyman hospitals when he presented a paper on the nature, characteristic features, and laws regulating the production of semiotic disease, to which he claimed corrupted fever belonged. The Dublin Obstetrical Society, which he himself was responsible for establishing, was the venue for the presentation. The society's meetings were generally conducted in an atmosphere of conviviality and mutual admiration for each other's clinical practice. However, that geniality was suspended by the topic introduced by Dr. Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy's detailed and considered presentation was delivered during the course of two evenings meetings. His core argument was that in nine out of ten cases, corrupted fever was preventable. He argued that the infection could frequently be traced to the occurrence of other semiotic diseases, a point on which the physician, surgeon, and public health analyst, Dr. Edward McArthur, agreed with. Dr. McArthur at the time was reputed to be the highest authority on semiotic disease in the country. He stated that he had seen many cases of very syphilis in St. Vincent's Hospital, Dublin which had come from the Rotunda during outbreaks of corporal fever. In opposition to Dr. Kennedy, one of the city's more senior obstetricians, Dr. Beattie, expressed the view that corporal fever was not a disease distinct zoonotic disease, but that it was a form of erysipelas in partial women. However, he also argued that medical students were culpable for the rising prevalence of the infection and he noted that maternal mortality was low in small lying in hospitals, such as were to be found in Limerick and New Ross County, Wexford. And this he attributed to the absence of medical students from the institutions. A recently retired master of Rotunda, an advocate of lying in hospitals, Dr. Glenn, disagreed with the suggestion that medical students were a source of infect contagion. So there was just, and I'm only giving a sample of um, the arguments here. He informed the meeting that he visited the Vienna Maternity Hospital after an epidemic of corrupted fever in 1861-2 and found that Semmelweis' findings were no longer thought to be valid. 
1845, he put on the seminaries identified a higher incidence of maternal mortality amongst women delivered by medical students as compared to the incidence among women delivered by female midwives. But in 1862, Vienna's obstetricians argued that this was no longer the case and that instead female midwives had become the principal sources of contagion. Dr. Denham held the view that work with fever often set in before delivery and that the infectious nature of the infection was, quote, greatly exaggerated, end quote. Other contributors agreed with the theory of antenatal infection, some believing that it lay in a latent state until after delivery. On the ninth and final evening of the debate, it was a landmark for a debate to go on for nine nights. The Lord Mayor was there, the surgeons were there, the obstetricians were there, the public were there, and the media were there. So it was on a par almost with MRSA at this stage. Um, it was probably a novelty too to have the medical profession so at odds with each other because there had always been a, a unity uh, uh, in, in what they were saying and doing. He expressed Dr. Kennedy and we got a chance to reply to the people who disagreed with him. And he expressed regret that the focus of the debate had centered on discrepancies in statistical detail instead of on the etiology of corporate fever. His audience agreed that the prevalence of corporate fever in Lyme hospitals was a major concern, but they could not agree on the source and spread of the disease. In calling for the closure of Lyme hospitals as he did, Dr. Kennedy was considered to have gone a step too far with the medical establishment. Dr. Kennedy was nevertheless applauded for introducing, quote, the most practical subject to ever come up for discussion in the society, end quote. Uh, you know, we shouldn't, you know, historians, we have to be careful not to use contemporary knowledge when we're looking back at the past, but it does seem uh, sad, tragic, disgraceful, whatever, that they've never talked about work with people up to that stage. Despite the lack of consensus, however, on how to prevent work with fever, lessons were learned and in time efforts were uh, made to manage the disease. I suppose one of the speakers last night said um, Joseph Lister wasn't afraid to push boundaries, and I think Dennis Phelan and Avery Kennedy weren't afraid to push boundaries uh, uh, in, a, in a different area. But throughout the nine meetings, nobody mentioned Joseph Lister or Louis Pasteur. And it was only a fleeting reference to Semmelweis to say that his theories were no longer valid. Um, the paper that um, I referred to earlier, which uh, Joseph Lister delivered, was delivered before um, the British Medical Association. Now, it's not possible that obstetricians, or rather, it is possible that obstetricians fail to see a parallel between asepsis in surgery and asepsis in midwifery because the jury was still out as to the natural home for obstetrics. That is to say, was obstetrics a branch of surgery or a branch of physics? Furthermore, it has been suggested that childbirth was perceived as a natural process, quite distinct from surgery, and therefore the sexes would not be of uh, value. Uh, conversely, Irish surgeons appear to have embraced Lister's teachings of antisepsis from the outset, and uh, effectively introduced antiseptic practices in their treatment of traumatic surgical wounds. Surgeon, uh, traumatic and surgical wounds. Surgeon Robert MacDonald stated in 1869 that there had been no cases of anemia since surgeons in Dr. Stevens Hospital Dublin had commenced using carbolic acid dressings. So 
why is it that uh, why, it baffles me anyway to understand why obstetricians were unwilling to explore alternatives to institutionalised childbirth for normal delivery cases in 1869, particularly as year on year maternal mortality seemed to be on the rise, it would fall ever so often and go back up again. As many as one in 12 working women died in the rotunda in 1862. You know, one of us would be gone if, we had, if this was 1862. And as many as one in 25 died in 1866 to 87. Um, so obstetricians were not willing to consider themselves as a source of infection and they were in their problem. Instead, they, uh, they liked to blame other people, such as the patients themselves, nurses, handy women, polluted air, and public sanitation. Um, Obstetricians, of course, had other reasons to resist closing the line in hospitals or to link themselves to the infection at that time. Uh, teaching hospitals were essential. Well, adverse publicity would potentially persuade Parliament to discontinue funding teaching hospitals, and the parliamentary grant system was coming up for review at that time. Am I running outside? Okay, then I'll finish out with um, the parliamentary grant system was coming up uh, for review. If the teaching hospitals didn't get the money they needed, they couldn't stay open. If they couldn't stay open, there was nowhere for doctors to train in midwifery. If, if doctors couldn't train in midwifery, most of them went back into general practice and outside of the city. Uh, if they couldn't just, uh, display good clinical midwifery skills, they didn't get patients, or the patients they did get died. And if your patient died in childbirth, you didn't get the healthcare of the family to look after. So it had a direct impact on their income. It had an impact to, closing the hospitals would have had an impact on the income of the master, because the master in the Tomden got the fees from the assistant masters and the pupil midwives. And he, that was for his own use. A small amount went to a boarding fee. He would have to pay for his position. And, only, and it was only open to members of the established church and to people with social connections. So it, there was a big investment. It was a commodity. Midwifery training was a commodity. Being master of the rotunda was, a, uh, was something that had to be purchased, but it paid off big time in the end. Now, I briefly mentioned a couple of, um, uh, I, I don't have time to go into hospital practices, but generally there were improvements. However, hand washing didn't come into being until the 1870s. And if I can just point out there to you, um, the blue line was the number of admissions into the rotunda, and I can't seem to get this wrong, sorry. Um, in, in the year on the red line, when maternal mortality was really high in 1862 to 3, there was a significant drop off in admissions. The same occurred each time there was a break at 66 to 67. I've gone too far. Sorry, I've lost it. Does anybody want to get back up for in uh, 1966-67, there was a rise in maternal mortality and, uh, and a subsequent decrease in, in admissions. So from a high of 3,000 uh, deliveries per year to 1,000 deliveries per year, a high being prior to 1857, um, there were less and less women. If you had less and less women, you had less and less students, and you had less, the, the, the institution was not attractive to foreign students. And, uh, if, if, and then Dublin, Rotunda particularly, 
might have lost its international reputation from biblical excellence. So, um, the history of middle free in Ireland isn't perhaps as well understood as elsewhere, and I'm enthusiastic about it because I know that there's still an awful lot more to uncover. Um, I'm sorry that I couldn't go into detail. I, I would say though that one of the pioneers in the prevention of tuberculosis fever was a doctor Nakin. He was master of Rotunda in the 1880s. And he, despite all of his hard work to improve the hospital, his own wife died of tuberculosis fever in 1886, just a few days after she was delivered by one of his colleagues. So, um, thank you for your time. And I apologize. Well, thank you very much indeed, and I, I like that we've gone from the sort of um, high science this morning to the removal of dogs from the uh, from the uh, wards, three wards uh, there. And I think the papers go very nicely together, reminding us in our potentially London centric meeting um, of the importance of, of Edinburgh and Dublin as um, medical centres. I have time for a question or two. Given the public debate on this topic. Uh, did the church have a stake in this? You mentioned very briefly that the church was there, but I mean, given the, the, the question of childbirth and, and, and mothers and so on, is, is that another player in this, in this process? Um, you can't look at uh, the medical profession in Ireland up to the end of the 19th century, certainly, without thinking sectarianism. Um, as I said, the chapter was open only to members of the uh, established church. Sorry, I mean the master's position, which would be the, the highest appointment in Ireland. The Coombe Hospital was very much the Coombe relation, and Pulse uh, um, Corrigan, uh, of Corrigan's Pulse, if you may be familiar, he, he commented in the 1850s that the position of master of the Coombe was going to beg. So whether you were Protestant, Catholic, or whatever, you could get, you could compete for that. But the mad national, not, not, but the enthusiastic nationalism and Catholicism that blended together, I'm sorry, that's nervousness, <laughs> at the end of the 19th century led to the opening of the National Maternity Hospital, which uh, had the approval of the Archbishop. And he did lend it some um, financial support even though he stood in the background with regards to um, uh, the administration of it. But it was rather enthusiastic as well as Catholic. So I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular that um, uh, you know, led that project. But in their enthusiasm for the National Trinity Hospital, they opened it in a building that had no running water, very poor condition, and within the first month, three of 12 women died, so they had to close it to improve uh, the building itself. Um, it should also be said that the man, the doctor who was who set it up, the first master, had failed to get the mastership of the rotunda that year, so he went off and opened up his own charity hospital. Does that answer your question? Well, it, it's, In a long-winded way? Yeah, it, it, no, it is a factor. I mean, this is something with it, apart from the scientific and the social, we have this other yeah, uh, elephant in, in, in the thunder room somewhere, in, in the birthing room. In which case, I'll thank you again for joining us. Our brief here um, at the Royal College of Surgeons and 
for our museums and archives in particular, is to uh, promote the past, present, and future of surgery to the profession, to historians, but also to the surgeons of the future. And to this end, we have a very active schools program run by my colleagues, uh, James Hughes and Hayden Kruger. And Hayden in particular has been working in this list of centennial year with the uh, Lister Community School, named for his lordship, in particular with Gordon Parsons, who is the uh, Community Performing Arts Manager, is that right, Dawn? And uh, Hayden's been advising Dawn on the um, Lister Festival they've been having at the school. And this has involved a number of things. There's been an art project inspired by the Lister um, roles, I think. Yes. Um, and also uh, uh, a Lister presentation prize. And it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome here the three students who uh, gave the best presentations at this. And I'd like to congratulate, first of all, Vivika Vanek and Keith Rahman, who were the runners-up in this prize. I'd like to give them a warm round of applause. Not a poison chalice, but the, 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 the prize for the top student, uh, Ashna Jet Malani, um, was to come here and present her presentation um, in, uh, here. And I'm sure you'll be delighted as I am to, to welcome her up to the stage. Quaker, he died as a Christian. This was due to the fact that the woman he married, Agnes Sang, 
He was not a Quaker and he left the Quaker society. He was a good follower of Christianity as no one ever heard him raise his voice in anger and he was quick to apologise if he ever offended anyone. His education. Joseph Nistoff um, expressed his desire to be a surgeon from a very early age. He got his early schooling from two Quaker institutions. One was at Hitchin and the other at Grovenhouse. This is where he learned French, German, mathematics and natural science, among many other subjects. While he grew up, so did his ambition. He wrote many essays on the subject and was deeply interested in the different structures of various skeletons. Before his 16th birthday, he had decided on his career to be a surgeon. In 1844, Mr. attended the University of London. He was unable to attend Cambridge or Oxford as those institutions were not open to Quakers at that time. He initially went to earn an arts degree, but in 1852, he left with honours as a Bachelor of Medicine. In the same year, at the age of 26, he entered the Royal College of Surgeons. Soon, in 1853, he became assistant to James Sang, who was the greatest surgical teacher of his day. Lister's many achievements are in his work in antisepsis, but his most notable discovery, which has revolutionized the world of science, is that of carbolic acid. Carbolic acid is a turning point in history. Lister was given the charge of a wood in Glasgow Royal Infirmary. In that no accident ward, between 45 to 50% of amputation cases died from sepsis. This was what encouraged Lister to experiment in antisepsis. Lister tried many trial and error solutions, and at last, after finding inspiration from Louis Pasteur, he found his first success in August 1865. He applied dipped in carbolic acid onto the wound of a boy who had fractured his leg. After four days, Lister renewed the pad and discovered that no infection had developed. To his surprise, within six weeks, the boy's bones had fused together without losing any pulse. He had published his results in the Lancet. What was the effect that carbolic acid had? After discovering the use of carbolic acid, the infection rates dropped and the hygiene in hospitals improved. Before, a surgeon was not required to wash their hands before seeing the patient. Lister himself followed that old tradition. In 1871, a gas frog that Lister wore a blue frock coat for operation, which he had previously worn in the dissecting room, and which was stiff and glazed with blood. Dirty coats were often seen as a sign of the surgeon's knowledge and experience, and the smell was referred to as good old surgical stink. reactions of infected wounds could be avoided, Lister instructed surgeons under his responsibility to wear clean gloves and wash their hands before and after operations with 5% carbolic acid solutions. Instruments were also washed in the same solution and assistants sprayed the solution in the operating theatre. One of his additional suggestions was to stop using porous natural materials in manufacturing hands or medical instruments. Lister had many thoughts, opinions, and teachings on his subject. He inspired others with his lectures. 
He left Glasgow in 1869, returning to Edinburgh as a successor to James Sand as Professor of Surgery at the University of Edinburgh. People often came to hear him lecture, and sometimes the audience members would be over 400. In 1877, Lister left Edinburgh, much to the disappointment of his student. However, he was wanted at King's. They agreed to Lister's conditions of two new surgical wards for his purposes, compulsory attendance at his lectures, and permission to keep his students from Edinburgh. After much deliberation, Lister finally agreed. as well as himself in, in the path of surgery, Lister is renowned for his sutures made of catgut. Catgut is the intestines of his sheep, which are better to use than unspun silk, which was used before. When these sutures were administered, the healing of the arteries proved to be occurring more rapidly and without the risk of the patient absorbing foreign material. Lister was also the first British surgeon to use India rubber drainage tubes. He had adapted the design of a French surgeon these could be kept in the room for se several days as it did not have the disadvantage of irritation and soreness of glass on the tubes. Lister soon retired from his practical work after his wife died unfortunately in 1892 in Italy during a holiday. He then fell into a depressed state. Whenever the seventh came down with appendix on 20th January 1901, two days before his coronation, the surgeons asked Lister for guidance. Lister advised him in the latest antiseptic surgical methods enabling the king to survive. The king later told Lister, I know that if it had not been for you and your work, I would not be sitting here today. Lister died on 10th February 1912 at his country home in Walmart, Kent, at the age of 84. After a funeral service at Westminster Abbey, he was buried at Hampstead Cemetery in Fortune Green, London. A great man was taken from us on that day. So this presentation was a salute to Sir Joseph Lister. Thank you for watching and please feel free to ask any questions. Thank you very much indeed. I am uh, was reflecting that I've had students, and I'm sure we've all got colleagues, even dare I say senior colleagues, who could learn a thing or two on clarity, timekeeping, and imaginative PowerPoint from the Ashton. So thank you very much indeed. And the question here? Um, it was just about the, the, his wife. Did she have the same name as the famous surgeon he was to succeed, and were they related? Yeah, and that was his daughter that was the work done on. Any comments on that? <laughs> Exactly. I just think it was, it, they had a quite um, a good relationship as their personal life and their professional life was quite intricately tied together. I think that helps in the relationships. So. Yeah, I was going to say that yeah. <laughs> I can sign this gentleman's daughter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because he was a Quaker, he did not go to the Crimea because Quakers do not take up arms. So he stayed in Edinburgh, and the story goes that his other surgical colleagues did go join the army, and therefore they missed out for a couple of years to said nothing of the sharks on the side. And this enabled Lister to get ahead. And I'm not sure how true it is in terms of actual survival, because Patrick Henry Watson, who is his rival, comes back after the Crimea, completed the splendid military moustaches, and built a nice surgical career for himself in Edinburgh. 
the Quakers and I think you might have taken this advantage of that point. <laughs> And can I ask uh, you, Ashland, and all of you, you don't as well, how Lister's presence is felt in the school? Is it is it just a name, or do you, you know, uh, uh, is it, is he represented in the, um, in the school in any way? Not until now. <laughs> no, but I'm sure in the future, I think we're thinking, I mean, annual Joseph Lister Prize or Science Prize. Well, thank you very much indeed. I, I know before all clapped out, I would like to congratulate again um, everyone involved, and especially Babika and Keith and Dawn and Ashnar again, all of you. Thank you very much for coming on this way, and I'm really delighted to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.